Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Steve Symington, lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that's freely available to anyone. Today, you're in for a special treat. I'm joined by Chris Mayer, author of 100 Beggars, Stocks That Return 100 to 1 and How to Find Them, and currently a portfolio manager and the co-founder of Woodlock House. Chris, welcome to the show. Steve, thank you. Good to be on with you. So can you tell us, uh, I guess, a little bit more about what keeps you busy these days? Yeah, so I started a fund called Woodlock House, and we launched in January 2019. It was backed by a family office that I work with before, the Bonner family. Uh, owns uh, Agora and a variety of publishing enterprises, and that they were my publishers when I wrote my newsletter before that for 15 years. So um, ever since that, uh, I've been running Woodlock House since basically a concentrated portfolio about aim to own about 10 to 12 stocks that we can own for the long haul. And yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing. Okay. So 10 to 12 stocks, some people, I mean, that is definitely concentrated. Um, yes. And kind of the, the genesis, I guess, of, of, uh, this podcast episode and, and having you on uh, was your book, uh, 100 Baggers. You guys can find this online pretty easily. And uh, I've been seeing people share it for so long. I finally bought it and uh, actually ended up reading it um, in two days and, huh. and uh, about 150 pages of it on the second day. And, you know, my wife looks. Oh, like, yeah. That's what I've, I caught you on Twitter. Where you were camping. You had it there. That's how, that's yes. how, uh, that's how was, I met you, so to speak. Yes. And it, it was, it was a fantastic book. You know, it's well, funny. My wife looked over and she's like, well, that looks kind of dry. And she doesn't have to. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, this is one of the better books I've read in the last five years. And, and, uh, it's incredibly quotable. And early on, uh, you cite some wisdom from Thomas Phelps uh, when he says, in order to make money in stocks, you need to have the vision to see them, the courage to buy them, and the patience to hold them, noting that patience is the rarest of the three. Now, how does that wisdom play into your current portfolio management style? Yes. Well, I mean, when, when Phelps, you know, when he wrote that, it was in a chapter where he was, an early chapter where he's sort of He's telling you stories, little anecdotes of people who have had stocks return 100 to 1. And he's trying to impress upon you, one, that it's possible because the people he cites are not, they're not great investors. They're just ordinary people. You know, they're people he's worked with. And then he, he was editor of the Wall Street Journal for a time. Uh, and the secret to their success, you might say, is that they bought these stocks and they left them alone. And... So that, I think the big takeaway from Phelps and that quote is that, you know, first off, it's possible. So, you, you know, you aim big and if you don't get there, you know, don't worry about it. I mean, it's a lot of people get very literal with me and they'll be, you know what, you know, they'll want to try to get that hundred to one, you know, over the next five years, they want to be able to envision how a stock gets there. But that's not really the key. You know, the key is to figure out kind of the mechanics of what creates the hundred bagger, which is what, what I spend my time in the book doing and what Phelps does in his book. And then once you find those traits, really to let the power of compounding do its work and leave those things alone. So that, that what you cited there is sort of the, 
crux or it's it's at the heart of what I'm trying to do at Woodlock House as well, which is just to find, you know, a dozen or so compounders that I could leave alone. I I hate using that term compounders because it's so abused, but (laughs) uh, find these stocks that have these sorts of qualities that uh, Phelps and I talk about in our books and that I can sit on hold. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's, I think the key is just holding and, and that is so hard yeah. um, for everybody to do. I think that's the the biggest thing is, you know, we get a lot of questions like, Hey, you know, should I sell this stock? It fell 3%. And I'm like, Oh goodness. You know, we yeah. <laughs> let's a lot of education involved there. Yeah. Pump the brakes. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I actually love that your the book focuses on what you call an every man's approach to huge profits in stocks. Can you elaborate on, on that? Uh, the every yeah. man's approach? Well, I think the, uh, one of the differentiating factors in this is that while it is hard, that one key factor that you have pointed to patience, which is, I agree, that is really the, the hardest part of it. <clears throat> it's also the most critical ingredient probably above all, all above all is that that's something that everybody can do yeah even though it's hard and i in my mind when you know when you first uh, read that i was thinking like i remember when i was younger learning about investing and you read those books like the market wizards books you know that jack schwager wrote about these guys mm-hmm. doing these incredible things and making just huge sums of money but they're often doing things like trading futures or doing you know things that are Ordinary people just can't do, yeah. you know, and I think that's the part of the beauty of the hundred bags approach is that it mixes things in there that everyday people can do. They can identify, you know, good businesses that should be around over the next decade and sit on. Yeah. And that's, uh, there was one, one quote after you, you kind of introduced the every man's approach and you said, there's lots of good ways to make money in the markets. This is a quote, just as there are different ways to make a really good pizza, nonetheless, there's something to be said for really good pizza that almost anyone can make with the right ingredients. And, and that kind of hit the nails on, it hits the nail on the head for me. Right, right. Um, Cause yeah, so many people will watch, you know, movies like the big short and be mm-hmm. like, wow, you know, there's so much money and they sort of dream that way. It's like, but you can do that. And, you know, and we're talking about a hundred bagger um, you know, stocks that return a hundred to one, you know, for perspective, this is a stock that you could put, you know, say $10,000 into and turn it into a million dollars. Yeah. You know, and it and it's something that takes for anyone listening a long time sometimes, you know, anywhere from ten to thirty years, you know, when you're looking at the measurements that you're using in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that kind of patience, you know, that's when you start to see truly ridiculous things start to happen right. uh in your portfolio. Now, you also mention um a concept of the twin engines uh as it pertains to finding a hundred beggars. So um, if I understand it right, you need growth in both the size of the business and the multiple the market puts on the stock. Can you elaborate on on that thought, Twin yeah. Engines? So when you really when you really get uh, you know these stocks that really take off, often they had this double combination. So let's just say, for you know simplicity's sake, you could, you know if you buy a stock at twenty times earnings and you know the the earnings over the next five years double and they, and it keeps its multiple of 20 times. You've doubled your money over five yeah. years, which is a perfectly fine outcome. We'd all be happy with, but if you can find something that goes from 20 to, you know, 40 and then, so then you've had the doubling in earnings, but then you've also got a double in the multiple. Now, you know, your $2 earnings is worth, you know, 80. So you've, you've, you've made, 
what, four times your money, right? Over, yeah. Instead of double. So, I mean, the math gets, it gets exponentially large if you can find something like that. And of course that's, that's, you know, really difficult part. And um, I wouldn't like pay too much attention necessarily on trying because what people will do is then they'll be afraid to pay up for a good business. Mm. And then I have lots of anecdotes where people did things like, you know, pass on Starbucks at 40 times earnings and then it's up a hundred X since they, since they said no. And we've all had those stories. So you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to lose the forest from the trees here, but the truth is that when you get both those things working for you, you can really make some phenomenal returns. Yeah. And uh, I think Austin actually had a, uh, a good little thread after square released earnings. And uh, it's, it's one of those things, you know, it's like so many stocks just look expensive, but you know, then their multiples get even, even wilder and eventually, you know, it might settle, but the market rewards them. Um, and that's kind of that ideal situation, having that, that twin engine kind of working for you. Uh, growth sometimes when that happens is, is the business gets better. Yeah. So if you find businesses where the margins are getting better, you yeah. know, uh, that, that tends to be something then where the multiple will also go up. Yeah. And uh, so if you can kind of peek around corners or find companies that are, or their margins are actually kind of increasing as they get bigger because of some network effects or because of economies of scale, that's where yeah. you're more likely to find the, that re-rating. Or some new product, you know, Amazon oh, yeah. pops right into my head, you know, when they AWS and they're right and after their core retail stuff and, or Apple, you know, has created yeah. several different, you know, new products they didn't have at all, starting with the iPod, you know, so it's, just, yeah. So who would have been able to, you know, predict that? I don't know, but that that's kind of part of the challenges is, is I, I like finding businesses with optionality that way. Um, so yeah. on a different on a different vein, um, we've spoken at length uh, at Seven Investing on the top of a topic of capital allocation, and and Simon and I actually dedicated a recent podcast episode uh, to the different ways companies can approach it. Um, you know, and we we sort of listed six different ways. I think you mentioned five different ways, but one of them is kind of a, a nothing way. But um, you know, there's you can do nothing or right. stockpile cash. You can invest in growth. Uh, you can make acquisitions, you can repurchase shares, you can pay down debt, or you can pay a dividend. Um, but I was kind of surprised, actually. I, you know, I turned the page and I was like, oh, an entire chapter dedicated to uh, the topic of stock buybacks on accelerating returns. Um, can you offer kind of some thoughts on, on the way you think about buybacks, you know, when they're are yeah. the best way to handle money and when maybe they should be avoided? Right. Well, you know, that's a you know, I felt I had to include that because there were these instances of stocks that uh, where the underlying business didn't really grow all that much, but they still were fantastic. Um, so obviously, one example everybody thinks of is Teledyne with Henry Singleton, who bought that great gobs of stock and, sure. uh, you know, stock did very well. The one I focus on in the book is one example I use is AutoZone, mm-hmm. which the underlying business didn't grow much at all, but they retired 75% of their stock. And so the returns were were very good on that stock. So uh, I felt I had to include that to kind of account for those. I know buybacks are a little bit controversial, even among super intelligent uh, capital allocators. I mean, I, I think, for example, Mark Leonard at Constellation Software, who yeah. his opinion of buybacks is it's almost like insider information and, and you're <laughs> taking it, taking advantage of shareholders who don't know as much as you do. And and I think he even uses the, the term, he's turn, turning shareholders into prey. <laughs> so that, that's one of the more extreme ones. But I mean, I think just rationally, uh, the way to think about a buyback is that uh, 
it is another avenue for capital. And there are times when your business repurchasing or basically buying your own business is maybe the best use of that, of that capital. And when you do that over time, reducing that per share, uh, you know, reducing that denominator, I mean, that that's going to accelerate the returns and like free cash flow per share and all those other metrics that we pay attention to. So it is, if you find companies that do it well, uh, it's, it's, it's a nice thing to have. Yeah. And well, and it's, it's, you know, for anyone unfamiliar with buybacks, if you're listening, it's so, you know, it's just essentially, you know, they're, they're buying these shares, they're retiring them and they're making remaining shares worth more per share on a per share basis for the remaining shareholders. So again, you know, you find that the people who are winning are the, the people who are just hanging on yeah, and, you know, enjoying this, you know, they're taking those shares kind of off the market and, um, and as long as the company continues to grow and increase in value over time, that, you know, that works out. Yeah. And uh, I think one, one big example that surprised me, even when Simon and I were talking about on our, our capital allocation podcast was Starbucks. You know, the amount of shares they, they bought back is just, it's staggering. We'll have to refer back for those numbers. And, you know, we even saw Berkshire Hathaway uh, mm-hmm. start rebuying, uh, repurchasing its own shares recently. So, mm-hmm. um but when it happens at scale, you know, like with something in AutoZone, when you talk about re- reducing their share count by 75% is what you said. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. stunning. You know, you right. don't think kind of sneaks up on you after a few years. You're like, wait, how much exactly. have they dedicated to this? And yeah, so. I mean, there are some companies out there just, I mean, Charlie Munger uses the term cannibals. They're just, <laughs> you know, c- consistently grind away their shares and, even if there's only a few percentage points a year, you know, over a decade, suddenly you've retired a third or yeah, 40% of your shares. It's really, and you couple that with either, even modest growth, you know, in the actual business. And it can be an interesting way to, uh, to, to compound and accelerate your returns. So, um, so conversely, are, conversely, if it's done very poorly, it can destroy capital. Enormously. Well, yeah. It's like, what if your yeah. stock is expensive? You should right. do it. And I, I think, you know, Coca-Cola was infamous for doing buyback when their stock was like 50 times earnings and they were getting, you know, basically 2%, you know, earnings yield on that money. It didn't work out. Yeah. Now, likewise, if companies do things where they borrow a lot of money to buy back stock, it's, those generally don't work out. You, know, no. you want them to come from internally generated cash. That's a, that's a, a fantastic point. You know, there are times when it's, it's not, you know, and that's, I think, I think more companies get a lot of flack uh, for, for actually repurchasing shares, you know, because it's, it, they view it as a, a vote of confidence in the company, but mm, right. it's not always uh, right. maybe, maybe a false vote of confidence uh, when they should right. be doing so. So there's better use for that capital. Yeah. Um, what about the, the role moving on to a different topic here of, of qualitative versus quantitative investing uh, on finding potential hundred beggars. Now you kind of mentioned like, you know, with qualitative investing, you shouldn't really care so much like what the federal reserve is doing, which I think, you know, even though you wrote this book a few years ago, it's, it's particularly prescient. <laughs> yeah. When you look at today's, you know, environment, there is, it's a wild market we're, we're living in right now. Um, qualitative versus quantitative. What do you think on, on that note? Yeah. Well, when I, you know, <clears throat> I think of qualitative too, I think of all those things obviously that aren't in numbers. So there would be things like, do you trust the people, you know, do you trust the people running the company? Uh, what, what's the culture like? This is something I've spent more time thinking about uh, this year and, and the last year 
is there sometimes there is a culture that comes through and you can see it in annual letters. You can see it uh, in transcripts when management talks. Mm -hmm. um, there's a focus on running the business and doing the right thing for customers, adding value for people and creating win-wins. I know that's a cliche, but mm. uh, being shareholder friendly, yeah. not, uh, you know, so versus management teams that are wildly overpaid, where, where the, uh, the alignment is not clearly not there, where they're being rewarded for doing something like growing sales, which doesn't necessarily increase shareholder value yeah. or where their product is sort of questionable, whether they're really taking advantage of their customers or not. Or, you know, there are other ways to think about culture, but I think those qualitative factors are important. Those qualitative factors are important. And some of the other things you were talking about with the fed. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think of those as kind of more macro questions mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sometimes they can be important as well. I mean, we're going through this pandemic and you couldn't just completely ignore that because it did fundamentally change how businesses are run. Yeah. And some businesses are going to be incredibly stressed by this. And it's not something that's just going to last for one month or a few quarters or a year and be done. It might be something that is around for a long time. So you have to, you have to adjust. That's, you know, I, I would say like most of the stuff that you read about the economy and forecasts and what GDP did and what the latest unemployment number, all that stuff you could probably safely ignore. Yeah. And you look at the, these past hundred baggers, you can see how, you know, those kinds of concerns that they didn't really matter. You know, they just plow through all these things over a period of decade. It doesn't matter. And even, you know, you could just think in your own experience, try to think about what was important a year ago. You know, what were you thinking of a year ago yeah. this week? What was the, what was the moment thing of the day that seemed so important back then? You know, whatever economic data point it is. And, and it's not even important now, you know? So that's why I, I think it's much more, uh, you get a bigger bang for your buck. You get, if you pay more attention, just what's going on with your particular business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I look back at the beginning of this year and I, I remember the Australia wildfire stuff. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> funny, funny you mentioned that example because I was talking to an Australian friend of mine and, and he said that he goes, you know, if you could roll back, you know, the Australian wildfires were like a couple countries on fire. That was the big news. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, six months later, nobody's talking about that. You know, it's, all, all it's, it's hard to believe it's only been that, but yeah, I think it helps put it into perspective. You know, what businesses have been able to just plow through and, you know, in the, in the mm -hmm. process and, and, you know, does it, does it matter over the long term that for businesses that are really built to last? Yeah. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned, I think, uh, charts, you know, do, do, do you buy a stock, you know, don't buy a stock because you don't like the chart, you know, will it matter, you know, next yeah. month? Right. You know, so that's, that's kind of hard. I mean, you know, if you have a 50% swing or something that, that drastically changes the multiple at which you're, you're buying a stock, then, then maybe, but I'm not, you know, I don't focus any time on, you know, technical patterns and those sorts of things, but right. not to I mean, say validity. Right. Right. And that, that's a big, a very important point because uh, with the hundred baggers, I mean, they all suffer drawdowns of varying yeah. degrees. And uh, I, know I spend quite a bit of time in the book going through a number of examples where, you know, you have these big, massive, severe drawdowns, but you don't even have to go that far. You can just think of, you know, good stocks that have 15%, 20% drawdowns. Yeah. You know, it's so what? But at the time, it seems like, you know, it can seem like it's a crisis moment. What do I do? The stock is down, you know, 20% from where it was last quarter. Yeah. 
and over a long period of time, those, those don't really matter. And, and, you know, we look at some of the patterns of some of those winners. The other thing I think it's not only drawdowns, but it, it just can be the sheer boredom of it. I mean, I know I had some examples of stocks that just went nowhere for years. My favorite example was Berkshire Hathaway, which there was a seven year stretch where it went nowhere. And yet that yeah. was the best performing stock in the whole study. But think about it. I mean, you and I know, uh, I'm sure our listeners know they're involved in, involved in this thing, looking at stocks every day to hold on to something for seven years and go nowhere is an eternity. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's a long time. Yeah. Well, and even now, you know, I, I have people kind of looking back at Berkshire over the last decade and comparing it to the S and P 500 and being like, Oh, it's underperformed so badly. And yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm not particularly concerned with, with stuff like that, you know, and, and anymore, to be honest, it's like when I have a stock that drops 20, 30, 40%, I barely even blink, you know, right. because I, you know, I, for me, it's, it's a matter of trusting my homework, you know, trusting the thesis and not just blindly trusting if it drops like that, there might be a reason, but go back, make sure it's still valid. Yeah. <laughs> Consider adding to that position, you know, at, at a certain right. point, you know, adding to a, a winner. Um, Right. But yeah, it's, it's stressful, I think. And that's maybe the hardest part is, is, is weathering those kinds of, of, you know, periods. Uh, and I think, you know, <clears throat> Phelps had one, and uh, one interesting thing I like, and he does in his book, because he has these presentations where he'll take a company like, I think it was Pfizer he used, and he has a 20 year table where he shows you earnings per share, sales per share, you know, dividends per share. And I think it's like the return on equity. And, the point is that this is a company that's very stable every year. You know, ROE is something like 16 or 15 or 17%, just bop, 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 bop. Mm-hmm. And earnings are going up. Yeah, every once in a while there's a pause where it doesn't, but then it goes back up. But his point is if you just looked at this table, and this was like a hundred bagger over those 20 years, yeah. if you just looked at that table, would there be any reason for you to sell the stock? Of course, you know, the answer is no. But if you look at the stock chart, you know, what happened during that whole time, it was you know, it was an up and down ride. And there was lots of moments where investors were probably scared of whatever, you know, thing happened at the moment. So, I mean, you're exactly right. You focus on that business and you go back and check, you try and make sure it's, you know, your original thesis is still invalid and the business that you is still what you thought it was. Yeah. But you know, if there's no business reason to sell, then you just almost always better off let just leaving it alone. Yeah. I saw a tweet the other day. Somebody said, uh, uh, if you, Netflix has returned like, I don't know, 10,000% over the last, you know, 12 years, uh, the average investor would have sold it 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, de- that's definitely true. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, you, you see things go up 10, I mean, who's, you have a stock goes up 10 X, you know, mm-hmm. How many times would you have sold it along the way? But, and that's, that's, I think the, the key. And, and you mentioned boredom. Well, I'd like to ask you more about that later. Um, yeah. But that also kind of raises a question over why people chase returns. Can you offer kind of some perspective on why people tend to chase returns? Like what you mean? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, some of it too, is that because, because they're, you know, being hit all the time with, with the prices. So, mm-hmm. I know I have, I told the story somewhere. There was a friend of mine who invested in art one time and he bought a painting and he just, cause he liked it and he put it on his living room and his living room wall and he, and he left it there. And, and then, you know, 20 years goes by and he decides he's downsizing. He's going to sell. So he's got this painting that he really bought and he liked and he decided to go to 
you know, Sotheby's and see what it was worth. And it turns out it's, you know, it's worth like you know, some huge multiple of what he paid. Say he paid, <laughs> you know, 15,000, whatever. And now it's worth like $800,000 something crazy like that. And, and, you know, first thing he was telling me the story. And I remember he said, well, if somebody was there, you know, every day giving me the price for what yeah. that painting is worth, there was no way, you know, he would have just left it there for all that time because there yeah. had certainly been a time where he'd been like, wow, you know, it's worth tenfold what I paid. I'm gonna get rid of it. Or times where then it was up tenfold and then maybe it came back down. He's like, well, you know, I'm gonna get rid of it now. Or part of it is just because you're always hit with that. And if you didn't see it, you know, you might not be so willing to chase returns and have to go after something else, you know? Yeah. So I, I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the ideas I like is that coffee can idea. I know we talked yeah. a little bit about it beforehand. I don't know if we talk about it now, but um, that's an interesting idea too. And so the idea of the coffee can, it comes from a guy named Robert Kirby, who was a money manager. And he wrote a article in, I think it was in 1984. It's called the coffee can portfolio. And it's an interesting story how it came about because he was managing money for a client and unbeknownst to him, this client's husband, I think it was, a, he was managing the wife's money. The husband would kind of copy her, the pics as, cause he saw it was going on her account. So mm -hmm. he'd buy a little for his account when he saw new buys come in. But there was one difference is that he never sold anything. So Kirby's over there being the you know, good active manager and he's adding things here and trimming things here. Occasionally he sells something, put something in the husband's over here, just buying and just leaving things alone. And then at some point the husband dies and that account rolls over to the wife and his back in Kirby's charge. And that's when he sees it and it hits him. He looks at it and he, and he sees there are several stocks that are up like multiples, you know, yeah. what he originally recommended. And there's one stock that's worth more than the entire account, you know, <laughs> the wife's account. And that really hit him that, you know, all this transactions we do, all this stuff, he would have been better off just leaving them alone. So that's where he came up with the idea of this coffee can where you, comes from the old West where you put all your valuables in a coffee can and you just sort of hide it and leave it away, you know, hide it somewhere, you don't look at it. And so the equivalent would be, you know, you come up with a portfolio of whatever it is, 10 stocks and you kind of create your own coffee can where you don't look at those. You kind of carve off some money and you're just going to let those ride and see what happens. That's, That's uh, one way to sort of conquer the uh, temptations, you know, to do things. If you consciously stop buying everything and, and right. You know, I've talked about that several times with the guys. It's like, you know, we've written updates and everything. It's, it's just to say, had we not sold anything we ever bought, you know, there'd be some losers in there. Absolutely. You know, I'd, I'd see stuff I bought a decade ago that's worth less today. But by and large, I'd be much better off had I never sold anything. And, uh, you know, you look at, you know, some of these stocks that, that I was buying, you know, I found some old brokerage statements from like 15 years ago. And, and I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, I wish I still own that. And, uh, you know, it's hard to tell, you know, find the money trail and see what I did with it, you know, since then. But, um, you know, with, with so little effort, you know, buying it, putting it away, coming back and just checking after a decade or something and, and see what happened. And uh, right. kind of like that coffee can idea. Yeah, I, I do too. I mean, and that's, you know, you mentioned something else that made me think about when people ask, you know, well, what's your biggest investment mistake? people are usually inclined to think about some stock they bought that cratered and, you know, they lost a bunch of money on, but yeah. the biggest mistakes are the ones, like you say, the mistakes, the things that you sold, mm -hmm. uh, those are the worst things that you sold. And then you look up, yeah. you know, 10 years later, and you're like, Holy cow. You know, if I had just sat on that. Yeah. Uh, I remember one of the first stocks I ever bought way back in then 
uh, this would be let's see this would be like in the 90s it was into it oh. <laughs> and i think wow if i had just left that thing alone i mean it's a huge winner so yeah. i mean those yeah. are your biggest mistakes yeah i i uh i wrote a little little update for seven investing uh, a couple of weeks ago and i think i was talking about um it was only five years ago you know i i just sold a small basket of stocks i was like i needed some cash for a down payment on my house and i'm like well let's turn my portfolio on and so sell a few of my stocks and i kind of went kind of evenly across the board and, and one of them was nvidia five years ago and i saw oh wow there's, there's a few hundred shares for i think about six thousand so. <laughs> and now i look and and uh, those few hundred shares be worth something like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. and i'm like oh my gosh and you know spoiler my down payment on this house was not one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. and right uh, yeah but and, you know, that's just five years you know and yeah uh, rewind farther and the stories get more sobering and and uh yeah so yeah uh, and, and really, you know, you find a lot of investors taking this sort of manic active trading approach to stocks. Uh, and you, you did, you shocked a lot of that up to boredom. And you've mentioned it before, but, um, what other ways, you know, have you found are best to kind of deal with the challenge of being bored when buying and holding stocks for a long periods of time? <laughs> yeah. I mean that besides the things that I mentioned, uh, you know, so the coffee can is one kind of interesting idea you know, focusing on the business is another kind of interesting idea. Just, you know, if you have some metrics that you look at and maybe you update, you know, every year, that can be a way, you know, I've been thinking about this. This is the one that I've been thinking about only recently because I've been more active on social media, yeah, Twitter and things. And, you know, there's always these people who put out how great they're doing, you know, either their accounts or some stocks and, you know, that the pull of that is also, I think, can be definitely negative. I mean, if you're constantly comparing yourself to where other people are and you're yeah. constantly comparing your stocks to other stocks, I mean, that's going to drive you crazy. So you somehow have to stop that, you know, don't uh, constantly compare yourself, benchmark yourself, you know, every quarter and year against, you know, other portfolios, other stocks that you see, because um, yeah, you're, you're bound to, give up on what you own. Yeah. And Phelps talks about this too. He says, and he writes about how almost everything that you read and hear from Wall Street or investment community is a kind of a call to action. Always someone's yeah. trying to get you to buy something and you, know, you, can't, you can't buy everything. And yeah. so uh, somehow you have to filter that out. And that, that's another, another aspect of it. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned uh, in that book too, like, you know, that's why I travel a lot. Like, <laughs> just to keep yourself yeah. occupied, you know. It's, I, uh, haven't been able, I haven't been able to do that. Uh, haven't been able to do that this year, which has been a killer. Uh, but, yeah. What a difference a few years makes, but yeah. Definitely, I, definitely. But I, I love to travel. I would go all over the place and yeah, that would get you away from your computer screen, get you away from, you know, obsessing over your tickers and news. Yeah. Uh, so even... Enough. Even now, I mean, there are times where I, you know, I just don't log, I don't log into my account. I just don't look. And sometimes I see how long I can go before, yeah. you know, I got to at least look. And uh, yeah, to be honest, it hasn't been more than just several days before I'll have to go back and just take a look. And yeah. Well, and, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure more than a few people listening could say, you know, they've, they've hopped onto their account, you know, several times already today and it's early. Yeah, that's but, right. Uh, 
you know, and that's, that's hard, you know, it's not- super hard. I mean, cause you're curious, you want to see what's going on. You, know, you can't, you get that little dopamine hit when your stocks are going up, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, and then the crash when they're, when they're falling, I then think you feel it, bad yeah. when things are going down. Like, Damn, I never should have <laughs> bought that thing. What was I thinking? Beat yourself up. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so you know, I'd like to maybe talk more uh about you know the the number of stocks you know that's the other people say like how many possible hundred baggers could there be you know and you list i think in the appendix or the index of your book uh 365 uh right Right. which incidentally was the same number of stocks i think that phelps had in in his uh index when he wrote the original book which is really interesting that's a lot of hundred baggers and some of them you know, might be really, really difficult to predict, to predict, but you know, in hindsight, you look back and you say, well, this, you know, should have been somewhat evident to people, but. And some um, of them were much more than hundred baggers, you know, they were up yeah. thousands. So it's like, you know, you could have bought some of those hundred baggers. You could have bought any time for a stretch of like five or 10 years and made a hundred times your money, you know? Yeah. So you've got a decade to find this thing, but actually right. that's one of the questions we've received fairly consistently since we launched from people is, uh, at seven investing is how in the world um, can you possibly think there are seven attractive stocks to buy in any given month? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, but I love that you cited some stats from uh, Graham in your book that there are over 5,000 publicly traded stocks at the time. There's a lot more what over 10,000 now oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well on the, you know, even just the U S markets. Oh, and, right. And if you start international markets, you're really getting up there. Yes. So, <laughs> and, and that's, you know, really, um, you know, the individual investor, Graham says, should be able to find at least 1% of the total list. And at his time, that would have been 30 or more that offer attractive buying opportunities. Now it'd be 50, 60 or more. Right. Um, and that's, I think, a very important point is there are a lot of good businesses out there. And, uh, and you wrote um, something to the effect of, of if you can't find, you know, anything compelling, you're not looking hard enough. That's right. Um, do you, you know, I'm assuming you still agree with that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. And, it, and I, sometimes I react to the people who want to just always say, well, stocks are overvalued, you know, or, and, and then they stop. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like saying, you know, nobody makes a good hamburger anymore. It's like nobody, <laughs> you know, nobody, if not a single buying a person in the country, you can't make it, you know, so that's what I feel like is saying stocks are overvalued. It's like, yeah, all of them. Really? Every single, you're telling me there's now there's thousands of stocks. You're telling me there's, you can't find, you know, 50 that might look interesting. I mean, then you're just yeah. not looking because there's always, always interesting opportunities. And that's one of the things that came out. Well, that's one of the things Phelps talks about in his book because it's just every year's recurring batch of, you know, dozens of hundred packages that you could have bought. And even just doing the study, you know, then myself and updating, it was the same thing was true from the period of time I did it updating from 62 to 2014 yeah every year there's just there's lots uh so and again my study too is only limited to the u.s market and i also put you know market cap and liquidity restrictions around it so if you were to even loosen that up you throw canada in there you throw some european markets in there i mean it's even it's even bigger so i I would agree there's lots of uh lots of opportunities so I have to ask to to that end, you know, are, are there any kind of potential hundred baggers that have caught your eye at this stage that you're sort of kicking around, you know, kicking the right. tires on it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have some stocks that I really like and I think they're not particularly big and they have these 
attributes uh, and their returns on capital are, you know, 20% or above. And I, I think they're companies that ought to be able to compound for 10 years or more. So, you know, you do the math, uh, I'd have to say that there may be one in there, but it seems absurd to say it because um, some of them are really in kind of boring industries, you know, they're, you know, whether it's like pizza delivery or, or, or you know, yeah. just doing ordinary things that you wouldn't associate necessarily with something that's going to go up a hundred fold. So that's, that's like why I always emphasize in the, in the book that, you know, not necessarily to sit there and look around for stocks and say that, you know, I'm looking for something that goes up a hundred to one because it seems so incredible. Yeah. And, and yet if you looked at, you know, a lot of stocks that did go up a hundred times or more, they often were humble businesses, McDonald's. I mean, who would have, if I had gone to you and had a hamburger chain, I had a hamburger chain with a hundred something stores or 200 stores or whatever they had when they were public, you know, it would have been a stretch to say, well, it's going to be a hundred, hundred X. But yeah. if you just focused on, you know, the union, the, the individual union economics of a McDonald's franchise, and you could see how they were the return on capital they were getting every time they added it. Yeah. And so I prefer to think of that hundred bagger yeah. question as a math problem, really, you know, try to focus on those companies that can that earn that high return on capital can reinvest and earn it again. And where you think they've got the runway and then the math and the time will, will do that work for you. Yeah. It'll eventually it just, I'll compound. And even if you don't hit the hundred X, as I always say, I mean, so what if you get 50 X and you know, people, uh, <laughs> you're going to be delighted. 10 X. I only found a 50 beggar. There's yeah. That's nobody, so disappointing. This book, no one ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Said no one ever. I mean, I wish I had thought of, I had come across this much earlier because, uh, you know, for a good long part of my career, I was just kind of more a value investor. Mm-hmm. You know, I buy things that are undervalued, sell them when they got close to being, fully valued or overvalued. And, and uh, I think this is a much better way to be, you know, to find some quality assets that you can just sit on and own. Yeah. So. Well, and you're still not that old either. So <laughs> I still have time. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm only 37 years old at this point. Yeah. You can, you got a lot of time. You can do it still. You can do I gotta it. Get, I got a good three. Gotta get one. I mean, yeah. So you know, the, Chuck uh, Ockray, who I talk about in the book, Chuck Ockray is a great investor. Mm-hmm. He's, he's got two. So, uh, you know, it can be done. Yeah. Well, and someone asked me, uh, I didn't respond. Um, I kind of wanted waited to respond because I figured we'd talk about this in the Twitter thread uh, where we were talking back and forth when I was camping and reading your book. Yeah. And they said, how many hundred beggars have you found? Steve? Oh, everybody so always far. brings that up. Yeah. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. ah, you know, I said, well, I'm still young. And, uh, you know, I look at the time and, and you know, I haven't found a, I, I hope some of the stocks that I bought early and I'm still hanging on to will turn into a hundred beggar. But right. Like you said, it only takes. Yeah. Well, that, that's a little, that's also, you know, people will ask, well, how many have you had? And, it's kind of a little unfair because one thing I, I wrote the book in 2015. Yeah. So I've only, you know, I haven't really been thinking in that way for very long. Mm-hmm. And even after I wrote it, I still, you know, I thought of that as a portion of something I would do in a portfolio. Whereas now I'm just kind of, it keeps growing and the other things I keep dropping, you know, this is becoming more and more the focus of what I want, but um, you know, so what, you know, if yeah. the principles are the principles, whether I have had one or not, it doesn't matter whether you have one or not, it doesn't really matter. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Getting, I, getting closer to the goals. Yeah, idea. exactly. You know, it's like, okay, I've got, I've got a few 10 baggers under my belt, a, you know, 15 bagger. And, 
you know, they're, they're getting there. Yeah, I've had, I've had a 10-bagger as well. <clears throat> and I also think, you know, what Phelps says is also important because he says, you know, if you, don't, if you don't think that way to start with, you'll never get it. You know, there is, there is something to be said for putting out that huge goal saying, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. 100 times my money. Yeah. And, you know, where it really happens is toward the end of that journey, you know. Yeah, that's definitely, that's really important because when you look at it, you know, every time, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all back and loaded. Yeah. I forget the math of it now in, the, in my book, but, you know, the difference between being up 50x and 100x. Yeah. You know, no, and you talk about the, the, you know, you hear people talk about the, the amount of wealth that, say, Warren Buffett, for example, has uh, built in the later years of his life, it's something like more than 90% of his wealth has happened in the last like 15 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's, he's been at this for five, six decades, you know, and he's right. been doing this for, so it's, it takes a while, but uh, it takes a while and it's back and loaded. I mean, that's other, I think of the story I'm sure you've heard about the lily pads, you know, the double every double every day. And then on the 30th day, they fill up the whole pond. And then, so on the 29th day, how much of the pond is full, you know, yeah. it's like half. So yeah. you think about it, it's all, you know, a lot of it comes in the back, back end. Yeah. And that's when it kind of, kind of becomes stunning. So, um, before we, before we wrap up, I, I do want to ask about, um, and we mentioned this briefly earlier, you talk about opportunities and pitfalls of investing abroad. Yeah. Um, are there any international markets today that you think are, are particularly compelling? That's a good question. Um, you know, I don't usually think about it in those terms, so I don't necessarily think, you yeah. know, this is a market I want to be involved in, so I'm going to go over there. You mentioned earlier you focus really specifically on, on the U.S. today, but... Uh... I do have quite a bit in Europe also. Okay. Um, so, yeah, actually, at the beginning of the year, the fund was more tilted to, to Europe. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, you know, I've found some very interesting companies in the U.K., um, maybe a little not as well known. I mean, if you look at the overall market, like the FTSE is kind of like their Dow, you say you know, yeah. that hasn't gone anywhere in like 20 years. It's pretty yeah. unbelievable. Now it's gone, had ups and downs and all that, but it's basically where it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these European markets are, can, can sometimes be like that. I mean, I have a company listed in France, one in Italy. So uh, I, as for me, it just kind of expands the the menu of things to look at maybe gives you a chance to get something that's not so, you know, well covered or appreciated. Sure. Uh, and as long as you can, you know, it checks the other hurdles. So are the disclosures good or, you know, can you trust the people involved? And a lot of companies in Europe are family owned and mm-hmm. which can be a positive and a negative. I mean, normally I think of family ownership as being a positive over here. And there's a number of companies I own where there's a family that owns a decent percentage of the stock, but you know, that family has proven to be shareholder friendly over time. And I think that's not necessarily always the case in Europe. Yeah. More of a, you gotta be more careful. Um, But I think there are some good capital allocators over there that maybe are not as famous or as well appreciated. And then, and um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I, I have found some interesting things in other markets to do. That's food for thought. Um, that's, that's, that's great actually. And it's one of those things where, uh, I think people sort of, you know, think, well, this is played out and you know, you have a, you know, there's so many interesting markets out there to, to look at. Um, but it can also get, you know, a little overwhelming. I feel like sometimes I have my hands full here in the U S but 
Right. And at the same time, you know, Austin and, uh, or sorry, Matt Cochran and Simon Erickson, one of our upcoming podcasts is going to focus on the Indian stock market. Mm-hmm. They have some really interesting uh, um, conversations they've had recently uh, to that end. But um, it's a big yeah, world. All those markets have hundred baggers too. You know, yeah. All, <laughs> yeah. That, that's what I would like. I'd like to see. I'd like to see other people from other countries kind of do similar studies to what what I've done, but do it on their markets. I mean, I'd love to see one for like the UK or see, you know, French, you know, actually the French market too has had a number of super successful companies. Mm. Um, So yeah, Australia, uh, I'd be curious, but yeah, they're all, you know, hunting grounds. There's a call to action for all you uh, investment writers for anyone who's running a newsletter who might want to do a similar uh, study. There you go. Uh, that would be, that'd be great. So if you're listening, do it, let us know you're doing it. Cause we'd love to keep an eye on you. So, yeah. uh, and speaking of which, um, I think that's a good, good place to wrap up our conversation. Chris, where can people keep an eye on you? Uh, if they're interested in following you, where can they find you? Yeah, well, I, uh, you can, it's easy to follow me on Twitter. It's yeah. at Chris W Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R. And I also blog occasionally at uh, Woodlock House blog. We can find by searching for Woodlock House blog. It'll come right up or just my Twitter account. I always post it there as well. So yeah, definitely keep tracking me that way. Good. And uh, and you can also find his book pretty easily on Amazon, one of the hundred baggers uh, yep. that, that we've talked about. That's right. Um, it's awesome. Uh, thank so, you so much so for taking you. the time. Hey, thank you for having me on. It's a fun conversation for sure. It's good. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's wrap it up there. Thanks everyone for listening again. I'm Steve Symington, lead advisor with Seven Investing here with Chris Mayer, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a fantastic day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.